Well, good morning. Uh, good to see everybody here today. I know it's a bit wet out there and you got a less, less sleep, but uh, it's not snowing, so uh, that, that's a win. Uh, I'm not sure if this is your experience or not, but um, when I get around people who are professionals, so professional artists or musicians or writers or athletes, I'm always surprised if I get a look behind the scenes to, to discover that their life is a little bit less exciting than I had imagined it to be. And that's because uh, what I discover time and time again is that they're doing a whole lot of something that I stopped doing long ago. So if you get around uh, professional musicians, right, they're practicing music and they're, pra- they're playing scales, right, and they're, they're, sight, they're practicing sight reading. If you get around artists, you know, they've always got a sketch pad and they're just sketching a tree or, you know, the door and they're, they're still thinking about how to mix colors and uh, you, go to a, you go to a professional sports franchise practice, Go to a bull's practice. And uh, wow, you know, they're, they're practicing dribbling and passing and layups and free throws and setting picks. All the things that I, you know, was practicing when I was about this tall. Now, when I was this tall, we were doing it all down here. And they, of course, are doing it all way up there and a lot faster. I mean, they're a lot better. But they're a lot better at a lot of these things because they keep doing them. They have, they have, they have mastered their craft in a sense because they just keep hammering away at the fundamentals. So that leads to the question, well, what are the fundamentals of the Christian faith? Now, whatever is on your short list, I suspect prayer is included. Uh, it has to be, right? Talking with God, praying, you know, getting down on our knees, communing with him. Last week, we... Uh, We looked at Luke 18, verses 1 through 8, the parable of the unjust judge. And I said, look, we're going to reduce this whole sermon down to one word. And I know that some of you are hoping that I will be reducing sermons down to one word. But if we're going to reduce it all down to one word, the one word for that sermon would be pray. And if we were going to reduce it down to two words, the two words for that sermon would be keep praying. Right, this, this woman is not getting justice, and she just keeps after this judge. And Jesus says, look, when things are not working well, when life isn't working, keep praying. So um, I felt like uh, I needed to extend this series by a week and to talk, what does it look like to pray? What is that actually, what's the experience of prayer? How do, we, how do we learn how to pray? So I went back and I reread all the sermons I have ever given at Christ Church, 15 years on prayer. And I said, well, I've, I've said a lot about this Acts model, right? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. I've told you a dozen times, pray the Psalms, right? These are, these are the prayers of Jesus. These are the prayers that, that first century Jews were always praying. And they're, they're a bit more raw than you might expect in terms of, you know, calling God into your presence and how you think about things. So I said, pray the Psalms. Uh, Additionally, I said, look, you can write a letter to God. This is what Bill Hybels, the pastor at at Willow Creek does. Every morning he writes a letter to God, then he gets down on his knees and he he reads the letter, in essence, as his prayer. 
Um, you can read books on prayer. In my blog this week, I posted a handful of books on prayer. You can, you can read other prayers that have been prayed by other people, written by other people. So there was a time in my Christian life where I, I didn't think much of this, of reading prayers. Now, I just want to say, well, you certainly want to pray using your own words. But to supplement that by reading the prayers from the 2nd and 4th and 8th and 11th and 15th century, these prayers that have stood the test of time can be a great way to move forward. So, um, I, you know, I, I, I said some things. I, I was inclined also to just tell you, look, Mal- uh, Malcolm Gladwell is now on record saying, like, you do something for 10,000 hours and you're an expert. Okay, so just get your 10,000 hours in, right? Uh, uh, it doesn't mean that prayer will be easy. I, I find that prayer sometimes is easy, sometimes it's hard. But you'll be good at it. You'll be a lot better at it. If you pray, I'm quite confident that if you pray, your understanding of God is going to change. And you will spend more time in awe and worship. If you spend a lot of time in prayer and you understand, your understanding of God changes, your understanding of yourself will change. And you will spend more time in confession, right? And you'll start to pray for different things as well. So, so part of me just wanted to say, just, just pray. Just, you know, let's not overthink this. Just spend more time in prayer. But as I was playing around with the question, how do we pray? I, I was led to the logical place to look, which would be um, the Lord's Prayer. The disciples notably asked Jesus how to pray. They don't ask him how to lead. They don't ask him how to work the crowd. They don't ask him, you know, how to stand up to bullies. They don't ask him any of the, they ask, teach us how to pray. Right? They, they clearly recognize the, the times that he's getting up early to slip away and spend time with God, the, the times that he's getting away from the crowds, John 17, all these, we've got all these instances of Jesus praying. They clearly see in his life that prayer is at the center of what makes him who he is. And so they say, teach us how to pray. And when they do, he gives them 57 words, which have subsequently been repeated billions of times by billions of people. And we do well to let our lives and our thinking and our prayers be shaped and informed by uh, these 57 words. So I'm just going to walk us through. We just prayed it. Uh, you know it. I, almost certainly you, you're familiar with the Lord's Prayer. I'm just going to walk through this sort of line by line and unpack this because this is profoundly rich theologically. I mean, there's a lot to learn about God and about the Christian life from the Lord's Prayer in addition to learning how to pray. This is not a, a magic formula. It's not a, you know, a chant that you do mindlessly. It's not a mantra. I don't want to go there. But but this is a, at, at the very minimum, it's a template for how to pray. And you could also just simply continually repray this prayer. So, um, our Father who art in heaven. It opens with this introduction. In English, the first word is our. And it sets us on a very different trajectory than if the first word were my. We pray, our Father who art in heaven, you know, give us this day our daily bread. It'd be very different if we said, my Father in heaven, give me my food. You know, grant me these things, right? That's a, it's a very different feel than we get with this word being our. We are in this together. This is just a reminder. Your faith 
is very personal, but it's not private. It can't be. You cannot do the Christian faith on your own. Christianity is not a solo sport. It just doesn't work that way. You were made, I was made in the image of a God who has always been one God in three persons. He's always enjoyed the fellowship of his own company. And we just, we, we are made in that image and we cannot not be in that image. We have to do this together. So, our Father who art in heaven. Now, Father, I think there's a couple key things to pick up on here. In the 70s and 80s, there was a, um, there was a movement that sort of referred to the fatherhood of God. And there was a sense that, uh, that we're, we're, all, we're all children of God. And there's a sense in which that's clearly true, right? That God is the, the genesis of everything everywhere. So there's a sense in which God is the creator of everything and he's the father of all people. But that's not actually the language that Jesus tends to use. Jesus tends to talk uh, about God being the father of those who call on him and that we get adopted into his family, but that we have to ask, John 1.12, as many as received him, as many as reached out and embraced Jesus, as many as received him, to them he gives the right to become children of God. And uh, Jesus sort of rather famously and brusquely says to the Pharisees, God's not your father. <laughs> the devil is your father. Right? So, so we are charged right, with expanding that circle, with always extending uh, to others the invitation to become children of God by, by reaching out and embracing Jesus and his grace and his gift. Now, the second thing to know about this salutation, our Father, is that the word that gets used here, uh, Abba, is a word of intimacy and access. Now, I think it's, it, it's a little bit of a stretch to say that this word would best be translated daddy. But it's not a stretch to say that it would best be translated dad. It is, uh, and this is shocking, by the way. I mean, it's scandalous. We don't, we don't understand how radical and and completely countercultural this would have been. Jesus, uh, at, at the time of Jesus, the Jews recognized God as being the father of the nation of Israel. But he was distant. He was holy. He was altogether removed. You had to go to the priest. You had to go to the temple to get access to try and get to God. There had to be sacrifices. This is, this is just so bizarre that Jesus says, you want to know how to pray? Here's how you pray. Our dad in heaven. <laughs> it's just, it's, it was shocking. Now, I know some of you don't have great relationships with your father. God the Father is a loving father. And you can have a great relationship with him and you can trust him completely. And, and the idea that, that we are instructed to call him dad, it, it is, this is a threadbare illustration that's been used so many times, but I promise you, all the people who try to get the attention of President Obama, heads of state and chiefs of staff and joint chiefs of staff and cabinet members, right? When his daughters come into the Oval Office or when his daughters come into a, a meeting and they say, hey, dad, right? <laughs> they, they go to the head of the line. And that's, just a different, that's just a different relationship altogether that they enjoy, a privileged relationship. And so Jesus is inviting us. Because of what he's done, there's an intimacy, there's an access that we're being uh, invited into. 
Our Father who art in heaven. So we now get the first of six petitions that make up the bulk of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now I'm quite confident that the only time you ever say hallowed is when you're praying the Lord's Prayer. And you may not even know what it means. So uh, it, is, it is a word that doesn't get used very often in any context. It, it has a, uh, a derivation out of Anglo-Saxon roots, hail, egg, hail. It, it, it sort of speaks to holiness. But it's important that you understand, we're not saying to God, God, you are holy. Okay? We could, he is. The angels in his presence, Isaiah 6, are just declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's an appropriate prayer, but it's not what we're praying here. Nor are we asking God to be holy, okay? because he is, and he can't not be. He is holy. This is a request, it's a petition, not a declaration. And the petition that we are making is, God, be who you are and break out in this world. Magnify yourself, glorify yourself, show up in this broken world through me in ways that draw attention to who you are and how wonderful and beautiful you are, right? Magnify your name, glorify yourself. And then the next two petitions are, are, are really sort of hand in glove here. So we pray, your kingdom come. So this series is called Kingdom Come and, and uh, tried to make it clear the kingdom of God is, is you know, it's not about castles and moats. It is, uh, it, is the, it is the place, a kingdom is a place where the rules of the king are honored. And the kingdom of God is the place where God's love and grace and, and his his holiness and his righteousness and his concerns of justice and, and, and his care for the poor, those things are embraced and lived out by people. And so what we're, what we're praying here is, uh, Father, I'm, just, I'm, I'm tired of being in a world that's broken. I'm tired of being in a world where my political choices are what they are. I, it's not what I want. Right? I, want, I want your values. I want your love and grace. I want your kindness. I want your holiness. I want, that's what I want. That's the world I want to live in. I want your kingdom to come. And then the next part of that, your will be done, is just, it's just part and, again, hand in glove with what it means for God's kingdom to come. His rules will apply. His vision, his ethics, his love, his plan. So C.S. Lewis famously noted that in the end, there's only two kinds of people. Those who eventually say to God, your will be done. I submit. You are God, I am not. I defer. I want your plan for my life. And those to whom God eventually says, okay then. Have it your way. I will step back. I will withdraw. And I will take everything that I made that might remind you of me with me. And we have hell being described as a bottomless pit, right? Emptiness, completely without, you know, form or substance. So we have to understand God's will for our life, God's will for your life, 
is better than your will for your life. Okay? If you understood who God is and what God knows, if you knew what God knew, you would want his plan, not your own. Now, that, that takes some time to get there, but once you see it, right, then you with zeal want to pray, oh God, your kingdom, your will, that's what I'm after. That's what I want. Bring it today. Use me. Lewis uh, says that we just repeatedly set our sights too low in a, I think, a, a relatively uh, famous common quote. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are too easily pleased. So we want for our life God's will. And we move on, and uh, we sort of cross a little divide here. We move on from the petitions that are focused on God to petitions that are focused on us. And it's a little bit of a head fake here because uh, the next thing that we say is give us this day our daily bread, which just seems a little pedestrian and small, right? We've been praying about God, his majesty and glory and and his will and his kingdom. And then we go, by the way, I I want something to eat. And uh, it just seems a little trite, especially, and it's bread, right? I mean, we're not even supposed to eat carbs anymore. Most of us have got way too much to eat, so we don't, we don't feel this, like, I need something to eat. So let me just, um, let me just say that, that although it seems to us like there could be a smoother transition from these first three petitions to the second three, perhaps if we moved to the fifth petition about forgiveness, uh, of, of our sins, our debts, trespasses, that this would be a little bit more appropriate, a little bit less uh, jerky kinds of transition. But we only think that because we have read too much Plato or been influenced by people who have read too much Plato. So we project this sacred secular divide uh, on the world, that there are things that are important. Sunday morning is important. It's more important than Tuesday afternoon. Or, you know, these things, Bible study is more important than my job. Or we just, we've got these, these kinds of ideas about how God thinks about things. And they're, they're just completely wrong. They're not, they're not Christian in any sense. There is not one molecule in the universe that doesn't matter to God. And as I've said before, in a deliberate attempt to be provocative, God does not, is, God is not particularly interested in your spiritual life. Right? God is not particularly interested in your spiritual life. That's because he's completely interested in every aspect of our life. Everything matters to God, including the fact that we got enough to eat. Now, the word that's used here in the Greek, the, the, one of the 57 words that's used in the Greek here is artan. It's a, it's a word that it's it means more than bread. Uh, it's sort of everything that we need to survive. So it's all, it all matters to God. We're asking God to meet our needs, right? Uh, food and shelter now doesn't necessarily need, mean, you know, a new car or any dish cable or dish network. Or I, I need, you know, the latest computer or a 6,000 square foot house. I mean, there, there, there's a sense 
in which part of what is so jarring about praying this is that most of us are not saying, you know, give us this day our daily bread. We're saying, I sort of need enough money for the next 30 years. And I like it, you know, protected from market decline. And I, you know, I just, I sort of, that's what I'm after. And if I don't have that, then I'm not really feeling uh, good about myself and where I'm at. So I just want to say, very hard to do well spiritually when you are not at least occasionally desperate for God to show up, right? We need to need God. Much easier to do well spiritually if you're failing professionally than if you're thriving professionally. It can be done, but it's hard. So it's part of the reason why Jesus said it's really difficult for the rich to go to heaven because it's hard to need God like we should. And this prayer sort of reminds us of what um, that is like. Now, by the way, another thing that, this, that all these petitions should drive home here, we're give us this day our daily bread. It's not wrong to pray for our needs. By all means, pray for your needs and pray for your wants. But I mean, bring your requests before God. You, I think you'll find that some of your wants don't make it through the prayer. I mean, that's my experience. There are times that I'm praying for something and I go, yeah, that's so trite. That's so small. I can't even pray that with zeal, right? And my, my prayers are being answered. I'm being reformed in the process of praying. So by all means, pray for what you want. Pray for what you need. But understand, while it's not wrong to pray for ourselves, it's wrong to pray only for ourselves. So we've got the plural pronouns in here. Then we have um, the fifth petition. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So forgiveness is a big deal. About six weeks ago, I preached on forgiveness, and I know from a conversation I had this week that some of you are still reeling about what I said and, and the, the, the full weight of implications of this. So um, forgiveness is a big deal. This is an interesting petition. And if I, um, well, if I say to you that there's one word in this petition that has generated thousands and thousands of pages of debate among scholars. My guess is you would get it wrong. <laughs> if I say there's one word that every, everybody has been arguing over, fighting over for a couple thousand years, my guess is in this petition you'd say, well, it's this word debts. Is it supposed to be debts or is it supposed to be trespasses? Some, some, some translations use the word sin. <clears throat> That's not it. The, the Greek word that is, uh, that is used in this context is... Um, Ophelimato and Mata, and it's it's it just it's a it's a big word. It's sort of a generic word. It's not a particularly religious word. If we were going to just translate that word out of context, we'd probably say uh, financial debt. But we don't we don't actually owe God money, so it doesn't make sense to say forgive me my financial debt to you. Uh, so it, we understand it to be obligation, moral, social obligation. And we just struggle with which English word best captures that. Translation is always challenging. So debts, trespasses, we're talking about our obligations, our moral, social obligations. The word that is debated is not, uh, is not that one. And the word that's debated is not forgiveness. I, I know that um, I, I tried really hard. Some people, some people define forgiveness in certain ways uh, and try and limit it. I tried 
again, six weeks ago to say forgiving somebody means that we, we're going to move to a spot where we're going to release things and uh, we're going we're gonna to let, let all that be up to God and we're, gonna, we're, we're going to try and move to a place where we have no interest in trying to inflict the kind of harm on them that they inflicted on us and where we actually can wish them well. And it's a radical thing. It's not about forgiveness. The word that has been debated in this petition is the word as. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. How exactly do you translate that? Now, when you read what Jesus says next, um, so in Matthew 6 um, is where we go for the fullest extent of the Sermon on the Mount, or the, the, well, Matthew 6 is the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6 and Luke 11 have the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6 has more than Luke 11 does. So in Matthew 6, there's a discussion about prayer, and then Jesus says, when you pray, this is how you pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then he goes on, evil or evil one. Then he goes on, verse 14, he says, For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So there are some who argue that what we are praying, it's just a radical, dangerous prayer. We have no idea what we're saying when we say this. What we're saying is, Father, forgive me to the same extent that I forgive the person that I've forgiven the least. Which is not what we think we're saying. Uh, And and it it would be a longer conversation than we have time for now. I I don't actually think that's the right understanding. There's, There's some force behind it. But I think when you read all that Jesus says, you consider all his teaching, you consider the rest of the New Testament, when you look at, when you look at all of that, we, we can count on the fact that God is going to be more gracious with us than we are with each other. And it's a gift. We don't earn it. We don't qualify for this gift. But I don't want to take the, the punch away from this passage. Right? We are expected to forgive. And this is a relatively dangerous prayer to pray. And, and we have to understand God defines forgiveness in a pretty radical way. And that is what is expected of us, right? We're not holding on to these grudges. We are, we are doing our best, the spirit of God's power, to move to a place where we can release that and actually transition over time. Some of you have been deeply hurt. I know this is not... It's transitioning over time where we can truly let go of what we're holding on to. So that is, um, that is the fifth petition. The sixth, the last petition, not the last line of the prayer, but the, the last petition. Uh, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. Is also a little bit vexing for people. Uh, Martin Luther used to say, you go to bed at night praying, petition five, and he'd wake up in the morning praying petition six. So he'd be praying for forgiveness when he went to sleep. He'd be praying, you know, no, no temptation uh, when he woke up. So what you have to understand, God doesn't tempt us to evil. Uh, there, isn't, there isn't like a cosmic entrapment plan 
where we're, we're getting led down a path to see whether or not uh, we, can, we can pull out of it before we get in trouble. The word temptation is also a word for test. God does test us. And testing us can be a good thing, can be in our best interest. But tests are not generally fun. You don't want tests. And so what we're praying here, not just for ourselves, but for everybody, God, please don't test the church. Please keep us from harm's way. Please keep us from persecution. Please, we don't want to head down that path. Right? We'd li- like it to be easy. We'd like things to work out. Right? We're praying for what we want. Please, no temptation, no testing. And then um, we have the, uh, the doxology here. Uh, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Now, if you're looking in your Bibles, um, you might notice that this may or may not be in there, depending upon what, what version of the Bible you're looking at. So, again, the Lord's Prayer shows up in Matthew 6 and Luke 11. The NIV does not include the doxology. The uh, King James Version and the message does include it. The NASV Version has it in brackets. And the ESV version has it as a footnote. So you're like, what gives? Well, here's the deal. We don't just have one ancient manuscript of the Greek New Testament. We have thousands. We have 5,000 ancient manuscripts. And we have 10,000 ancient Latin manuscripts. And we could reproduce the entire New Testament just from the correspondence that we have, where people are writing letters back and forth and they quote from different parts of the New Testament. So when we put all those things together, we're looking for the agreement. There's like, there's like a 99.9% agreement, not just on the words, but on the letters. But there is this 0.1% where we go, huh, some of the ancient manuscripts have this in there and some don't. What are we going to do? And there's a whole science behind this. Please understand, we're 99.9% there, and there's no doctrinal issues that rest on that 0.1%. Whether or not this addendum, uh, this doxology, this ending to the Lord's Prayer is supposed to be in the Lord's Prayer or not, it's actually found in 1 Chronicles 29. So it's in the Bible. It's not that we were making it up. I think we leave it on because uh, it just makes sense to me that the prayer would pivot back to God. So we start with God, we, we pray some petitions about God, and then we, we transition into some petitions about ourselves, and then we end focusing back on God. So I would leave it on. And here's what I'd say. We have been given a phenomenal gift. 57 words uh, from God that can profoundly shape who we are and guide and inform our prayers. So every day, in some way, you ought to be shaped by these 57 words. Now, maybe you just pray the Lord's Prayer. Maybe uh, you pray the Lord's Prayer, but in various days you stop at different petitions and you just rest there, you, you reflect there, or you go, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And then you just, you just think about God's will and you pray for God's will and that's, that's the rest of your prayer time. Maybe you pray the Lord's Prayer, the format, the outline, you pray the Lord's Prayer in your own words. 
Right? I mean, there's, there's, there's a variety of ways to do this. But understand what a phenomenal gift. We have been given divine coaching. You want a life coach? Here's Jesus as a life coach teaching you how to pray. And he gives us these 57 words. So let me pray for us. Dad, we come before you amazed, if we think about it, that we could invoke uh, that word to come into your presence. We could go to the head of the line. We're not, we're not restricted to the outer courts of the temple waiting for sacrifices to be made and, and getting in line to, to ask someone to pray for us, but we can literally come before you into your presence and use this term that you, you, would, you would identify yourself as our dad and that we are your children and we marvel at that. Lord Jesus, thank you that uh, you have secured this access for us through your death for our sins. We want to pray, Dad, that you would show up in a big way in this world, in our lives. You would draw attention to yourself. You would, you would bring your love and grace and vision and values and your, your, your righteousness and your justice, that you would bring all this. You would fix this. We are tired of a world that's broken. We're tired of the pain. I'm tired of hurting other people. I'm tired of seeing people hurt. I'm tired of my political options. I'm, I, I, we want your kingdom, your values, your will to be done. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we set before you, Father, all these concerns and cares that we have for food and shelter and for favor with others in meetings coming up this week and for the ability to make good decisions. There's just so many things, gas for the car, that we need right now. Father, we set these things in front of you and pray for your favor. And we confess that we are undeserving of any of this. We are broken. I am broken. Dark heart. Riddled with greed and, and lust and anger and fear and, and pride. And we confess that, that we are broken in so many ways. Father, help us to have a, a, a grace-inspired Teflon coating in which we just do not uh, hold on to the ways that we are hurt by people, whether they intend to hurt us or not, that we would, we would find in you an identity, a, a love, a grace, a power, a joy that allows us to, um, to forgive quickly and completely. Move us in that direction. And we pray, Father, for your favor. We don't want tests. We don't want trials and testing and persecution and suffering. We don't protect your church. Guide and lead us. We're asking uh, for things to work out in favorable ways for us and those we love. And we pray all these things. In the precious name of your Son, our Savior, amen.